into your, into your life. We're going to be in Luke chapter 13 this morning, Luke chapter 13. And our verses, our text this morning will run from verse 10 down to verse 21. Follow along as I read our passage, uh, Luke 13, beginning in verse 10. And as he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bowed together and could in no wise lift up herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her to himself and said unto her, Woman, thou art loosed from thine infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. The ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath day. He said to the people, There are six days in which men ought to to work, and in them therefore come and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. And the Lord answered him and said, Thou hypocrites! Doth not each one of you on the Sabbath day loose his ox or his ass from the stall and lead him away to the watering? And ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan hath bound, lo, these eighteen years be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And when he had said these things, all his adversaries were ashamed. And all the people rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. Then he said, Unto what is the kingdom of God like? And whereunto shall I resemble it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and cast into his garden, and it grew and waxed a great tree, and the fowls of the air lodged in the branches of it. And again he said, Whereunto shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid three measures of meal, till the whole was leavened. Well, few events really capture our imagination in history like invasions. Right? We're coming up close to June 6th, and we think about D-Day, and wow, you think about World War II, I think for a lot of us, that's the image that comes to our mind is D-Day, the, the Omaha Beach, and the, the troop transports opening, and the bunkers, and, and all of those things. Or you remember in history, remember 1066, William the Conqueror crossing the English Channel, conquering England for the, for the Normans. Or you think about some ill-fated invasions, like Napoleon trying to invade Russia, and Hitler trying to invade Russia, doesn't really go too well for anybody. Or even in our own history, you remember the War of 1812? Uh, well, I'm not saying none of us were there, but you remember learning about that in class, and the British came through, and they actually burned the city of Washington, D.C. to the ground. They burned the White House. Uh, I think that was the last time our country was actually invaded by a, an opposing army. It's notoriously hard for an invading army to dislodge an entrenched defender. It's notoriously difficult. You need huge ratios for the invader to, to, to drive out the defenders. We're, we're kind of seeing a little bit of that right in the, in the news of what's happening over in Ukraine, just the advantage there is to the defender. History, in one sense, is a history of, of kingdoms that are clashing and wars that, that come one after another and empires that rise and fall and kingdoms that rise and fall. History is the story of invasions, of defenses, of attacks, of counterattacks, of kings and, and, and emperors and, and powerful people and powerful nations. But in another sense, there's a theological way that we can look at history. History is indeed a clash of kingdoms, but not so much different human kingdoms warring against each other, but really it's the clash between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. It starts all the way back in the Garden of Eden with Satan introducing sin and, and, and deceiving mankind to be rebel, rebels against God, and the, the, the whole creation, the whole universe now being arrayed in rebellion against God. God's good world, God's perfect world, God's perfect universe that he created 
is now dominated by sin. It's now dominated by death. It's now dominated by suffering. And that's not the way it originally was. It originally was beautiful. It was originally very good. But it's not the way it is now. With the coming of Jesus, we see... I don't understand either. With the coming of Jesus, we have the great counterattack of heaven against the occupying force of Satan in the world. We have Jesus coming into enemy-occupied territory, so to speak. John 1 describes it this way. He came unto his own and his what? His own received him not. He came into the creation he made, but it is occupied by enemy forces. It is dominated by darkness, dominated by depravity, dominated by disease, dominated by death, dominated by demons. We've already seen in Luke's gospel this this clash, this conflict that is unfolding. We, we see Jesus going into the wilderness and being tempted by Satan for 40 days. We, we watch Jesus as he goes into a synagogue for the very first time in Luke 4. And what happens by the time his sermon is over, they want to throw him over a cliff. Now, I know you've probably heard some bad sermons in the last five years with your pastor, but none of you have ever, to my knowledge, conspired together to hurl me off a cliff. I've not had that kind of animosity from this church. Yet Jesus comes in and he evokes this, this rage and this hostility, and there's this, this division that he brings we've seen throughout Luke chapter 12. Jesus is now on the road to the cross. He's now on the final journey to Jerusalem. And as he travels, the, the battle lines become clearer. The, the division of forces becomes unmistakable in this battle against Satan. We now see this next field of battle here, and it is an unnamed synagogue somewhere between Galilee and Jerusalem, maybe in Perea, but we're moving closer to the cross. As Jesus travels, look down in verse 22. It says that he went through the cities and villages, and he went through the cities and villages teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem, right? So as he's going, he's getting opportunities to teach and to preach and to come into these synagogues. And here we see yet another expression, another evidence of this clash between the kingdom of God that is, is breaking into the world and the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of darkness that's fighting against it. And he's saying, we, I didn't see anything about kingdom or kings in verses 10 to 17. No, but we did get reference to Satan. Jump back with me to, to Luke chapter 11. We saw this a few weeks ago. In Luke 11, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they accused Jesus of being in league with Satan. But man, you're only casting out demons by Satan, and you know, you're, you're not really working for God, you're working for the other side. And Jesus tells them, okay, that's really dumb. A kingdom divided against itself won't stand. That doesn't make any sense. But notice what he says in verse 20 of Luke 11. But if I, with the finger of God, cast out demons, cast out devils, no doubt the what? The kingdom of God is come upon you. There is this link between every time Jesus casts out a demon or heals a sick person and the kingdom of God being inaugurated and breaking in. So what we see here in Luke chapter 13... Uh, Verses 10 to 17, with Jesus healing this woman who is bent over and Satan who is bound her, is another proof that the kingdom of God is broken and that Jesus is the king and he's calling everyone to come over onto his side. So if Jesus is the king, and if his kingdom has indeed broken into the world in his first coming and has been inaugurated by his death, his burial, and his resurrection, how should you and I respond? If the king is here and the kingdom is being offered... Well, here's very simply what we must do. We must come to his side. We must submit ourselves to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We must embrace his mission. We should join him, become citizens of his kingdom. I want to just walk through this 
passage, and, and we're noting this, this clash that is going on here. I want to just note several phases of his rule as it is brought into the world. Number one, I want us to note the kingdom's invasion. The kingdom's invasion. This is sort of Jesus coming back in. As when Jesus came into this world, it was like coming onto Omaha Beach, not coming up to Pensacola Beach. It's Iwo Jima, not a trip to Oahu, right? He's not just welcomed with wide open arms, but he is opposed and rejected at every turn. And it's, it's sort of shocking. It's surprising to the disciples to see this opposition that he is facing. He is staring down the forces of sin, the forces of suffering, the forces of Satan that dominate God's world. We see him confronting demons and death and disease and depravity. So what does invasion look like? We think of an invasion, guns are blazing. We think maybe he comes in and he's going to throw people out of synagogues. No, his mission, his invasion is one of redemption. It is one of deliverance. So notice, notice what goes on here in this account. He comes into a synagogue in verse 10 on the Sabbath day. That was typical for Jesus, to be teaching and to be declaring and explaining God's word in the synagogue on, on the Sabbath day, which would be our Saturday, the Shabbat. It's the sacred day of, of worship and rest for the Jewish people. And as he was teaching that day, something, something happened. Just imagine that the church service is going on, and then somebody kind of comes in late. Verse 11, behold, look at verse 11. There was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bowed together and could no wise lift herself up. As Jesus got up and began to deliver the Sabbath day lesson, the Sabbath day sermon, everybody's listening with bated breath. In hobbled a latecomer. Maybe, you know, word came at last minute, hey, today Jesus of Nazareth is going to be at synagogue. So she began to make her way. In her condition, it's hard to walk. She can't get there as quickly as other people. So maybe she's coming in after the service has already begun. Or maybe she's been sitting out in the auditorium all along. And once Jesus gets up, he can sort of see her where he hadn't seen her previously. But notice verse 12. It says, and when Jesus saw her, Easy little thing to read over. Oh, Jesus saw her. Great. Yeah, he sees his audience, sees her. But we know in other passages, think of Matthew 9, 36. Jesus sees the multitude. He's what? He is moved with compassion. When Jesus sees suffering, he does not just see suffering, but he is moved with compassion. He feels pity. He feels pain. And he acts to do something to relieve, to alleviate that suffering. What a pitiful creature she was. Luke uses that little word, behold, to make us say, hey, look at her, imagine her. There's this woman, a spirit of infirmity. Now, what does that mean? That suggests that there was some demon that was oppressing her with this sickness, with this disease, with this pain. A a spirit of some kind that caused this infirmity, that caused this sickness. She's hunched over in a permanent contortion. Maybe the, uh, the, the vertebrae in her spine were fused together in a single mass to where it's incredibly painful, where she's unable to stand. A number of doctors have looked at this and, and come up with the various uh, you know, labels of what her condition may have been. Whatever the case was, it was a permanent, painful, incredibly difficult disability that she was dealing with. She, so she's bound together. She's, she is hunched over, almost folded in two. You get a back injury, you're like kind of going around. Now this, think about this for 18 years where you cannot straighten your back for 18 years. And by the way, no nerve blockers, no Tylenol, no, you know, no codeine, no, 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 no relief of any kind. Absolute agony. Every single day for her is agony. She's bent over. You can't even, you can't even look people in the eye. You're sort of looking up anytime you want to see where you are at. Just a very, very painful condition that she is in. 
And given what pe the way people acted in those days, she would have been treated as a social pariah. She, people would have avoided her, though. And we don't want to be contaminated with whatever she has. Remember we saw the attitude last week where people said, well, if there's suffering in your life, you must be a really bad person. No doubt many people looked at her being like, well, I wonder what horrible things she did to have this happen to her. What never crossed anybody's mind, apparently, was that this was an attack of Satan on her. Now, just a word here. Some people make a big deal with this one account to say, see, all sickness is caused by demons, and so we need to cast demons out of people and heal them. My dad one time had a colleague who had a bad neck from various injuries, and another colleague of his was a, you know, a well-meaning Christian man who had that mentality, and here they are at the university where my dad teaches, and this guy's out in the hallway Say, hey, can I pray for you? And then he starts, and I cast the demons out of painful necks out of your body and the demon of, uh, 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 and it's really weird stuff. Listen, sometimes you have a bad back just because you have a bad back. But sometimes it is Satan's attack. We know the story of Job. Job had incredible physical pain that was brought onto him by Satan who afflicted him with that disease. So let's be careful here that we don't say that, you know, all sickness is caused by demons any more than we should avoid saying all sickness is caused by sin. There's no hint here that she's demon-possessed. Jesus does not cast any demon out of her. She's not a wicked person who's dominated by Satan, but she is demon-oppressed. This poor woman had become a target of Satan's twisted schemes and vicious attacks. What does Satan love to do? He loves to attack those who bear the image of God. He loves to attack those who are meant to reflect the dignity and the, the worth and the beauty of what God has made in his creation. This is the world into which Jesus entered. This is where the invasion occurs. He's come into this world to defeat Satan, to forgive sin, to alleviate suffering, and to kill death. He said as much the first time he was in a synagogue. Jump back with me to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. By the way, the text we're looking at this morning is the last time Jesus is in a synagogue. So the first and the last times he's in a synagogue in Luke's gospel, we see his mission, we see his heart. Back in Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes into the synagogue at Nazareth, and he says in verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he says, this day this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. He says, I have come to roll back the effects of Satan's kingdom and domination in the world. So how does he do it? Well, he defeats Satan by being temporarily defeated by Satan. He defeats suffering by suffering. He defeats sin by absorbing sin. And he defeats death by succumbing to death itself. He wins the victory at the cross. That is where this is all pointing us to defeating sin by absorbing sin, defeating suffering by suffering, defeating death by dying, and defeating Satan by being killed by Satan. The seed of the serpent will bruise your heel, but he shall crush, crush your head. And that is what we see Jesus doing. And every miracle, every person that is delivered is another sign the kingdom has broken into the world. The liberator has arrived. So that day when Jesus came into the synagogue on, on that Saturday morning, he immediately noticed this woman. He immediately looked at her with compassion. Well, everyone else kind of gave her sideways glances and shifted down the pews to stay away from her. Jesus does the opposite. He did not see her as an interruption, but as an image bearer. And no doubt she'd been in the synagogue Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath. 
And the legalistic Judaism could do nothing for her except condemn her. But that day, everything changed. So Jesus saw her with compassion, but next we see him summoning her. By the way, this area is such a beautiful picture of how Jesus liberates sinners, right? He sees us in our sin, and then he summons us to himself. Now, notice what's not here. She does not come and say, "Um, Jesus, could you please heal me? We don't see her taking the initiative. Rather, we see Jesus taking the initiative. He called her to him, not the other way around. We would make a mistake to say that Jesus is there at our beckoned call. That's not how it works. When Jesus saw her, he called her to him. He summoned her to himself. So maybe Jesus gets up and he's in his introduction and he notices her and says, Hey, you, come up here. Now, this was unusual to have a woman come to the front of the synagogue. We understand that the way the Jews thought about women, they were sort of second class. In fact, they would sit on opposite sides of the synagogue, lest the men be contaminated by being getting cooties from from the girls kind of thing. This is unusual. This was not on the agenda for the day. As you you look through the bulletin that day, there was not a Jesus comes and heals a a woman who's got a bad back. That, that That wasn't in the cards for the day. And as she slowly shuffled forward, her eyes just peering up, Jesus gazed on her with compassion. All the initiative from Jesus. All of this is his idea. Now, she has no idea what he's going to do. Maybe he's going to come up and say, this woman is this way because of her sin. Maybe he would expel her. Maybe he would shame her. She she had no idea. But this healing was undeserved. It was unrequested. It was unmerited. This is an expression of sheer grace. By grace are you saved through faith. Beloved, you and I are saved in the same way Jesus sees us. He loves us. And he summons us to himself. He brings us to faith and repentance. It's all his grace, not our works. In contrast to the aloof leaders, Jesus does not push her away, but brings her close. He, he brings the broken to himself. He brings the rebels to himself. He doesn't say, go away from me, but he says, come near to me. Someone shared a video with me this week of a uh, preacher, a pastor, and I put that in scare quotes because he doesn't deserve the name, who's preaching a sermon and says, if you're a Democrat in here, get out of the church, and he's screaming and yelling. And I'm kind of like, how about come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Last time I checked, being a Republican does not make you a Christian, right? God, I get off that. Jesus summons her to himself, and he, he, he calls all sinners to repentance and faith. Not a get out of here, you're, not good. you're, 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 you're too bad for me. But come unto me. That should be our posture too, beloved. If, if our attitude towards the world is, well, there's a them out there that we, they're, they're horrible, they're bad. If they come, we're just going to heap condemnation. Well, we should not be surprised if nobody wants to come to our church, if that's our mentality. Jesus' mentality is, come to me. It is to summon her. But then we see Jesus saving her. I love what Jesus does. Look at the end of verse 12. Woman, thou art loosed from thine infirmity. Now, we read that, woman, you know, hey, woman, get over here. And, no, that's not his mentality. That, 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 that's, a, that's a sign of respect. That is a polite way to address her. Maybe at this point, everyone looked at her and said, cripple. Everybody looked at her and said, cursed. Everybody looked at her and kind of didn't see her as human anymore, as valuable anymore. But Jesus looks at her and says, woman. This is, this is a, a, a word of, re, of reminding her of her dignity and of the fact that she is an image bearer of worth and value to God. Thou art loosed from thine infirmity. What a gracious word. He delivers her. He saves her with just a word. You're loosed from your infirmity. 
Now, the way this is worded in the Greek, it's almost like you are now in a state of being loose. This is not just a, you're loosed now, you're freed from this now, but tomorrow it might come back. No, it is you are free and you are forever free. You are delivered and you are loosed and you are not going to deal with this infirmity any longer. With just a word, he saves her. With just a word, he declares her healed. With just a word, he declares her free. The kingdom of God is on the offensive. Satan's domination over the world is broken. Jesus said earlier, like, hey, listen, if people are raiding prisoners out of the strong man's house, it means the strong man has been beaten. And the presence of Jesus means the strong man, means Satan, his power has been defeated. Yes, he's still roaming and still deceiving, but his time is short. The king has come. But verse 13 goes on, and he laid his hands on her. As he was speaking, I don't think this is he speaks and then lays hands, but he's laying his hands on her and speaking at the same time. He brings her close. He lays his hands on her, speaks to her. No doubt nobody, if anyone, touched her, given the stigma of her condition. So Jesus, with wonderful words and with healing hands, conveyed to her freedom. God is not aloof. He is not distant. He has come into our world. He has come into this broken, sin-cursed world with healing, with hope, with forgiveness, with mercy. He personally identified with her and identified her with himself. You remember back in high school, there was always like, you know, there's the cool kids and then there's, you know, everybody else. And the cool kids don't want to hang out with like the not cool kids because it'll make you look bad. Jesus is like, here's the person that nobody cares about and she's up here with me and I'm with her. He is not ashamed to, to have us as his people. Like, that's pretty awesome. If you've, if you've been in a place where you've been sort of rejected and you're like, hey, nobody's wanted me and I've been rejected, I've been divorced, I've been abandoned, I've been ignored, please know that there is a God in heaven who loves you. He says, I'm not ashamed to have you as my own. Verse 13 goes on. He laid his hands on her and noticed this. And immediately she was made straight and glorified God. Her back that had been fused together, her body that had been doubled over, almost doubled in half like a sheet of paper, was now straightened. In just an instant, Jesus recreated her entire spine. Jesus gave her freedom. Jesus removed her pain. And it's immediate. This is not some, you know, go, go away in three weeks and come back and let me know how, how this is going. This is not some parlor trick with, let me, oh, look, I just made your legs longer kind of thing that the, the, the faith healers try to, to try to foist on us today. This is a real bona fide miracle. 18 years in just an instant completely undone, completely reversed. A real miracle that everybody could verify. Everybody in the synagogue had seen her for 18 years in this condition. And now she is freed. Look at her response. Immediately she was was made straight. Her back that was bent over is now straightened up. And there's a cool play on words here in the Greek. And she glorified God. The idea is she began to glorify. It wasn't just a, well, praise the Lord. Thank you very much. No, she began to glorify God, and she got into it. You read the Old Testament, and you get a sense that the praise and the worship of the people of God in Israel was exuberant and was full of life and energy. Think of Miriam on the shore of the Red Sea with her tambourines, and she's dancing, and the horse and the rider you have thrown into the sea. You read Psalms. Clap your hands, all you people. We see lift up holy hands to God. This is the entire body, the entire soul, worshiping and praising God for his deliverance. And why not? If for 18 years you've been barely able to walk and now you are able to walk, you would be excited as well. 
What a shame that we come to church having been delivered by something far worse than a bad back. We can't be bothered to sing. Come to church and we're like, we don't want to sing. We just kind of mumble under our breath and have our heads hanging down. Beloved, we have been rescued. We have experienced God's grace. Jesus has seen us and summoned us and saved us. We belong to him. He's owned us as his very own, and we have eternal joy to look forward to. Why would we not sing? Why would we not sing? There was no doubt when this happened that this was all of God. Even the way you are loosed, it's a passive who's doing the loosing. Well, God's doing the loosing, and Jesus is standing in the place of God. And she glorified God, rightfully so. She's recognizing in Jesus the working and the power of God Almighty. You can imagine the scene, shocked gasps rippling through the room, a smile breaking out on her haggard face, songs of praise bursting from her lips. I think we can imagine her reenacting the Psalms. And praising God with clapping and uplifted arms and dancing and singing. This was a day of great joy. Probably in a way that this synagogue had never seen. Judging by what the, you know, the leader of the synagogue was like, this was probably a pretty heavy place. Where nobody got happy. You didn't smile when you came. You came very sober and sat down. And This was joy that had never been there before because when Jesus shows up, he brings joy. Display of the kingdom's power. This is the, a sign that... The strong man has been bound. The kingdom has invaded. But we know this, that when an invasion happens, there's always a counterattack, right? There's always the, they're going to try to push them back off the beach, push them back into the sea. And that happens in verse 14, which brings us into the sort of the second phase of Christ's kingdom. We, we see it invading, but now we see the opposition in verse 14. And the opposition comes from a surprising place. You might say, and Satan now unleashed all of the demons of hell to fight against Jesus, and this darkness came over. No, what happens? And the ruler of the synagogue, the religious man, answered with indignation because that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath day. And he said to the people, there are six days in which men ought to work, and them therefore come and be healed, and not on the day of the Sabbath. He's really hot and bothered by this. So what does this opposition look like? What is this, what is this army that is arrayed against the forces of Jesus against his power? Well, it's not just horrific disease. It's not just demonic oppression. It's not just suffering and sin. I think the greatest regiment in Satan's army is false religion. It's the counterfeit. And when I say false religion, you know, all the Mormons and the, you know, the, the Islam. And, no, people who think that they're doing God's will who have the right convictions. The, the, this guy was, understands the Old Testament and rightly, he, he's quoting scripture here and had the right beliefs. His doctrinal statement would have been accurate. But he's standing in direct opposition to the kingdom of Christ. Man, that's a serious thing. So notice the characteristics of this opposition. It's first marked by pride. It says he's the ruler of the synagogue, the president of the synagogue. I think one of the reasons why he's so outraged is he's normally the guy who calls the shots. Jesus is a guest, and he's being a really lousy guest. He's starting to heal people during the, and break away from the normal order of things. And I think there's a sense in which, Jesus, who do you think you are? This is, this is, this is my roost that I rule over. This is my house, my rules, and, and how dare you? This reaction of pride. I think as we think of a portrait of false religion, as we think of a portrait of what the opposition to the kingdom looks like, First line of opposition is pride. We often think, well, really horrible sins, really. No, pride is an expression of hostility to the kingdom of Christ. 
In contrast to her exultant and humble joy, by the way, rejoicing like she does is an act of self-forgetfulness. You're not even thinking about what everyone else is doing. You're just like, man, Jesus is awesome and he's healed me. This guy's very conscious of what everyone else thinks. We see this oppressive legalism, this shocking pride. Rather than him saying, Jesus, you're truly great. If you can heal like this, this is amazing. How dare you heal on the Sabbath day? You see, our default setting, that we come into this world because of the, fallen, the fallenness of the human race, is that of opposition to Jesus Christ. Pride is the norm, right? Not humility. Resistance against God, not submission to him, is the norm. And we know this, that entering Christ's kingdom, being saved requires humility. It requires us owning our sinfulness and coming to the foot of the cross in repentance and in faith. What's required to enter the kingdom is the polar opposite of our natural pride, of our self-righteousness and dependence on our own works. If you're going to come into the kingdom, you've got to let all that go. You've got to come to Jesus and him alone as your only hope. And this man obviously was not willing to do that. He was not willing to give up his position and defer to Christ. That's the essence of sin. The essence of sin is saying, I want to do it my way, and I don't want Jesus to call the shots. Do you see that kind of pride in your heart? Can you detect that kind of attitude? Listen, it crops up in all of our hearts at times. Even as believers, there is remaining indwelling sin that we deal with. And more often than not, it is some variety of pride, of I think I'm better than I, than I really am. But there's another expression of this opposition, and it is legalism. What I mean by legalism is just sort of, here's the rules, and it's all about the externals, and it's all about judging other people. We did a sermon a few weeks ago at the end of Luke 11 on legalism. Go back and listen to it if you want to get a sense of what legalism is. But notice the guy's mentality. He responds with indignation. He's, he's really angry, righteously angry in his mindset because Jesus has broken some of the Sabbath rules. You don't do work on the Sabbath day, and Jesus just healed, and that's work until Jesus is a Sabbath violator. Now, there's actually no verse. I, I have read the entire Bible. There's nowhere in the Bible that says, thou shalt not heal on the Sabbath day. Okay, you don't, don't, don't do work. But nothing in there about don't heal. By the way, if you're God and you have infinite power, healing is not actually work. But for this guy, Jesus did something. Jesus, what had he done? He'd, he'd called a woman to come to the front of the room. He'd put his hands on her and declared her healed. That's work. Because we have rules that need to be followed. In fact, they, you can read these rules if you read the Mishnah and the Talmud. Sort of a collection of the, the oral traditions have been written down. And there are a bunch of rules about what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath day. And it's ridiculous. Okay, so the Old Testament would say, don't do any work. They're like, well, what's work? Is sewing a button on a shirt work? They're like, well, one button's okay, but three buttons, mm, that is not okay. No throwing seed on the ground because that might go into the dirt. And it might grow, and you have now just started farming on the Sabbath. Just ridiculous stuff. Went to Israel a few years ago, and they will have in the hotel Shabbat elevators. Because the Bible says, don't kindle a fire on the Sabbath day, and if I push the button, I'm closing or opening a circuit, and there's a spark, I just did a fire. And so these elevators are elevators that will stop on every floor automatically, so you don't have to push any buttons. No work on the Sabbath day. Ridiculous, right? That, that, that's not at all what God intended when he says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. He's not so much upset that Jesus has allegedly broken God's law, but that Jesus has broken the rabbi's interpretation of the law. Right? We, we do the same thing today where someone will come and do things a little bit differently than, than we would do things, maybe you know, different music or different hairstyle or whatever, and we're like, well, that can't be of God because God said that um, like, 
only piano's the right instrument somewhere in the like we, we come up with these things and we use those as the standards of how we judge other people. Legalism is an expression of this opposition to the kingdom of Christ. Now, let me hasten to add this. The legalism primarily that I'm thinking about is the legalism that says the way that I get right with God is by keeping all the rules. It works, and I, if I do enough, and if I'm baptized, and I go to church, and I, and I say the right things, then God will accept me in the end. That is direct hostility to the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of Christ is entered in by faith and faith alone, not by works. So with cold arrogance, notice what he does in verse 14. Look, look back there. He's with indignation. He said to whom? The people. He, he, there's just so much cold arrogance here. He won't even talk to Jesus to be like, can I have a word afterwards? But he's like, let me just tell everyone over here what this bozo just did was just, is not right and come back another day to be healed. There's six days where men ought to work, not on the Sabbath day. And the way this is worded in the original, not on the day of the Sabbath. It's very sanctimonious. Very, oh, the, the violation, I can't handle this. This is just, just so, so, so wicked. What the leader missed was that his legalism had never done anything for the woman's suffering. She probably had come to this, this synagogue week after week for 18 years, and he had done nothing for her. Jesus did in 18 seconds what he could not do in 18 years. But here's another characteristic of opposition to the kingdom, and it is hypocrisy. Notice Jesus' response. He's not going to stand for this kind of arrogant, legalistic, heartless response. Then the Lord answered him. Notice Jesus is called the Lord. That's not just a stylistic change. That's Luke's way of saying, by the way, Jesus is the one who calls the shot. He's the king. He's the Lord of the Sabbath, right? He's the one who really gets to decide what's right or wrong here, not this lowly individual made of dirt. Then the Lord answered him and said, hypocrite. And this is in the original. This is a plural. You hypocrites. Not just the guy standing there, but all the people in the audience were sort of nodding along and being like, oh, that is really bad that Jesus healed during the Sabbath. He says, y'all are a bunch of hypocrites. You're a bunch of fakes. You have a double standard here. You will allow yourselves to do one thing while condemning me for doing essentially the same thing in a slightly different way. He says, hypocrisy. So Jesus is responding pretty bluntly. This is not nuanced. This is not winsome. This is Hypocrite, fake, fraud. You are hard-hearted, mean-spirited fakes. That is what he is saying. Now, I mentioned a minute ago the Mishnah, that catalog of all the rules. Had a bunch of rules about things you could do on the Sabbath day. It says, well, if you've got, you know, a cow in the stall, on the Sabbath day it's okay to untie the rope and bring him down to water. Just as long as he's not carrying any burdens, because now he's working, and as long as you don't hold the bucket, it's okay. Okay, so you're allowed to untie your animal and give him water on the Sabbath day. Jesus notes that in verse 15. Because you guys are hypocrites, doesn't every one of you on the Sabbath day untie his ox, his donkey, and take him away and give him a drink? Of course you do. It would be unkind, it would be heartless to leave him tied up in the sun all day, dying of thirst. Of course we recognize it is right to give water to your animal on the day of rest. We recognize that's not work because that is caring for God's creation. Right? Caring for God's creation is good and it's right. So Jesus' argument is this. Okay. If untying farm animals is okay, then why is it a problem to untie this daughter of Abraham from her bondage? That's what he asks. Uh, Verse 16, and ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan hath bound, lo, these 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? So he's got sort of a play on words here. You untie your animal. Well, I have simply untied her from the bondage that has 
has afflicted her for 18 years. Why is that a problem, guys? If you're okay with farm animals, why is it not okay for an image bearer? More to the point, he's saying, why should a farm animal be treated better than someone who is made in the very image of God, who is a daughter of Abraham, the one who is, God gave all the promises to? If she, why should farm animals be treated better than image bearers and promise inheritors? Where, where are your priorities? He is calling out their crazy beliefs. He's saying, you're being a bunch of fakes because you do the same thing. But beyond that, where's your heart? It's pure hypocrisy to treat animals better than people in the name of protecting the Sabbath. We can sometimes do the same thing where we treat people badly in the name of protecting sort of religious, uh, we're going to do things this way and, and all those sort of things. I've heard stories before of overzealous pastors yelling at people because they didn't wear quite the right uniform when they came to church on a given Sunday or someone decided to take a photo during a wedding and this is worship and not a, a photo session. Just this heartlessness where you, where you shame people and belittle people for not keeping the man-made rules. It's hypocrisy. But notice what Jesus also says in verse 16. Ought not this woman being a daughter of Abraham whom Satan hath bound Lo, these 18 years, that word lo is that word behold. He says, think about it, 18 long years she has been afflicted with this. He is calling out their callousness with that little phrase. It's been 18 years, guys, and you have a problem with me healing her? Really? He declares that her suffering has been the direct result of satanic attacks. Satan has bound her in this condition for 18 long years. He says, are you really more concerned about your rules than her misery, her misery and God's mission. Is that really what is most important to you? So that's callous. That is hard-hearted. Cruelty towards people made in God's image is no sign of conviction. So, well, I really stand for stuff until I let people... No, 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 no. If we love God, we ought to love our neighbors. John asks this question. If you can't love your brother whom you see, how can you love God whom you have not seen? James asks... Hey, with the mouth bless we God, and with the same mouth curse we those who are made in the image of God. He says these things ought not so to be. If we, we love God, we should love those made in his image. We can claim to be very religious, but if we have no concern for those who God loves, our claims to religious zeal ring hollow. Now, notice what Jesus does. In verse 16, he's taken the words of the synagogue leader, and he's flipped them on their head. He said, you ought not to work on the Sabbath day or you ought to work the other six days. Jesus comes around and says, notice he uses that word ought again. Ought not this woman to be healed on the day of the Sabbath? Exact same language. He's actually saying, no, not only is it okay and permissible to heal her on the Sabbath, it is actually necessary. There is an ought, not just a you may. So it is necessary, it is right. Why did God give the Sabbath to begin with? Isaiah 58 is an interesting chapter. God talks about religious practices like fasting and like the Sabbath, and he asks regarding fasting. He says, what's the point of fasting? He says, the point of fasting is to loose those who are in bonds and to care for those who are less fortunate. It's not just you to walk around in sanctimonious pride and be like, oh, I'm so miserable and therefore so holy. But it's an opportunity to serve others by saying, since I'm not eating, I'm going to use that food to help others. And then he goes right into talking about the Sabbath. I think Jesus is leaning into Isaiah 58 by saying, one of the reasons God gave the Sabbath is for it to be an opportunity to relieve those who are oppressed and hurting and weak and vulnerable. But here's a final characteristic of this opposition to the kingdom. Verse 17, 
When he had said these things, all his adversaries were ashamed. But all the people were rejoicing for the glorious things that were done by him. So everyone's like, this is great. Look, Jesus just healed this woman. She's standing upright. She's dancing and having a good time. And everyone else is excited. There is joy that is just exploding in this synagogue. But what's the result on the hearts of those who oppose him? Shame. They, they won't join the party. They sit on the back pew with their arms crossed and be like, get all upset and angry and frustrated and embarrassed. They're hanging their heads in shame while others are lifting theirs in praise. Jesus' logic here was irrefutable. His argument was unassailable. And so the synagogue leader looks utterly foolish and rightfully so to all his enemies hung their heads in shame, and I guarantee you when the service let out as that closing prayer was being prayed, they were out the door. They didn't want, they didn't want to see Jesus look him in the eye. In contrast, the entire crowd is rejoicing and joining into this woman's spontaneous worship service. So the sermon starts, Jesus gives his introduction, I imagine. He heals this woman, they have a big worship service, and then he's going to come back later and, and finish his sermon. But here's my question. Does the work of Jesus in your life Okay, we're talking about the kingdom coming in, the gospel coming in, him seeing and seeking and saving sinners. Has that and does that unleash joyous praise in your heart or embarrass silence? Are you marked by joy or joylessness? Sometimes we think that being you know, really pious Christians means we don't ever smile. And we get upset about those who do. Now, we know there's a shallow Joel Osteen kind of you know, Christianity that's built on nothing. I'm talking about real joy that can, that can go through trials and hardships and be sustained by the grace and the promises of God. One of the marks of being on the side of the kingdom is joy. We should sing. We should gather. We should celebrate because we've been delivered. We've seen God's power. We've experienced his grace. Volcanic joy and happy worship mark those who have been delivered. Stiff legalism, coldness, joylessness marks those in opposition to the king. Really evaluate your heart. Which one marks you? Is it that joylessness and that coldness and that judgmental, or is it joy? The the synagogue president, the synagogue leader, missed out on that joy that day. It says that all the people saw the glorious things that were done by him. They're, They're all staring at the same miracle. And most of the people see, this is glorious, this is awesome, this is majestic, this is a great feast. But those opposed to Jesus look at it and they see just darkness and it's not a great feast, but it's like eating dirt. These guys are like the, the, the dwarves at the end of the last battle in Chronicles of Narnia where they're just like, everyone else sees a feast and they're just like, this is horrible, this is a joke, we, we hate this, the king's a bad person. This is what it is like when we retreat to the solitary kingdom of ourself. As Christians, we pray, thy kingdom come. It's not about me. It's about Christ and his glory and his majesty, right? Like that, that's where our focus is. Yet I guarantee you, if there are problems in your marriage, in your relationships, it's because at some point along the way, instead of saying thy kingdom come, you have said my kingdom come. I want this to be about me. And that's a miserable place. When we shut ourselves inside the castle where it's all about me, we pull up the moat, we pull up the gate, we fill the moat with the alligators, and it's all about me, that's miserable. That's where the synagogue leader found himself. Every day we have a a choice to make. Am I going to live thy kingdom or or my kingdom? Your agenda or my agenda? Serving others or serving myself? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. 
There's the opposition. There's the, the counterattack, and Jesus smashes the counterattack, obviously. He just flattens it with his withering logic and with his power and with his grace. But I want us to see the, the third and final face. Because all of this is sort of talking about what the kingdom is like now, right? Jesus has come, his death, his burial, his resurrection, he's saving sinners, he's delivering people from the, from the clutches of Satan. He's still doing that today, by the way, if you're not a Christian. If you're not a believer in Jesus, you're still enslaved to sin. He can free you and release you today if you will repent and believe in him. But what about the ultimate outcome of this battle? How's the war going to end? Well, it brings us now to the message that he delivered that day, and we see here the kingdom's triumph. Verse 18, then he said, that little word then is showing that this is directly connected, right? That's why I'm including this in the same message. A lot of people divide these into two messages. I think these belong together. We're in the same setting. So everyone now has sat back down. The woman is still beaming, but the, the spontaneous worship service has died down, and Jesus now comes back to preaching his message. And he asks, under what is the kingdom of God like, and wherewith shall I resemble it? He's just had this great exhibit, this great sermon in, uh, in action of what the kingdom of God is like, but now he's going to give a verbal comparison. And I think he is answering a question that was on everybody's mind. Everybody's like, hey, the kingdom, we read about it in the Old Testament. It's really glorious. It fills the whole earth. That's great. This is a little different than what we expect, right? I mean, healing someone, that's... That, that's awesome, but healing a lowly, lonely woman looks so measly compared to all the suffering and evil in the world. I mean, this is great, but think about how many other people in Palestine at that time were also afflicted in similar ways who were not healed. You know, Jesus did not heal everybody with just a wave of a magic wand, everyone is healed. When the apostles come along, there's still sickness and suffering. And after they passed off from the scene, there's still sickness and suffering. Even though Jesus has come, there is still evil that is rampant in our world. How could such an act as this in an unnamed synagogue to a nameless woman truly signal the inbreaking of the glorious kingdom of God? Okay, this is a great miracle, but we're talking about something so much bigger. This seems so tiny compared to the reality we read about, and, and he shall reign forever and ever, and the, 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 the wolf will lie down with the lamb, and there will be this eternal kingdom full of joy, and the knowledge of God shall cover the earth as waters cover the sea. This doesn't seem to match that reality. So how can this be the kingdom when the kingdom is so great? It seems so small, but the kingdom in the Scripture seems so great. How can this be the kingdom? How can we say that the kingdom of Jesus is now inaugurated and yet the world be full of so much wickedness and evil. How do, we, how do we resolve that? What's more, there were many, many who were like that synagogue leader who thought Jesus was nothing more than an imposter. You want proof of this? They murdered him. How can we say the kingdom's come when the king himself is going to be executed on a Roman cross? It's easy for us today to be very, very discouraged. We look at the world, the world is not getting better and better. Now, some people take these parables and are like, see, this is proof that the tree grows and the world just becomes more and more Christian. And then God's great, there's that hymn we sing, we've got a story to tell to the nations. And, and God's great kingdom shall come to earth. Like, we're going to preach the kingdom. And no, that's not happening. To be honest, to turn the news on, that's not happening. There's ups and downs, and we get some victories here, some victories there. 
we're not Christianizing the world. The world's not getting better and better. In fact, it feels like it's going the other direction. And, and by the way, you read 2 Thessalonians, there's a great apostasy before the end. 1 Timothy 4, there's going to be perilous times that will come before the end. There's going to be this great tribulation. The love of many will wax cold. Things are not going to get better and better, but it seems that things are actually going to get really, really bad before the end. We can look at the state of the world through the narrow lens of time. And I think a lot of Christians are doing this. I want you to hear me out here. A lot of Christians are doing that. We look at the, the state of our world through the narrow lens of time. And what, do we, what happens when we do that? We get really discouraged. We get angry. We become cruel and mean in the way we talk to people. We say, well, things have changed so much. No more Mr. Nice Guy. Now's the time to fight fire with fire. And if those who are on the secular side who are leading the charge... Use language a certain way. Well, we'll just use it right back at him. And we go back and forth. And, ha, at least our guy is going to really let him have it. We're going to punch back. And we're going to be all excited about the punching back. And we're going to wave our little let's go Brandon flags as we insult and use language that is unbefitting for the cause of Christ. Many Christians have concluded that that's the way to go, that cruelty and anger is okay because the hour is so dark. Being, being kind and loving and compassionate, well, that might have worked 20 years ago, but now we've got to really break out the anger. That makes us feel good. We resort to name-calling, to insults, to meanness. We treat character as secondary to just owning the opposition and infuriating the very people we're called to reach. There's a lot of people who think, man, you must be really doing something right if you really make people angry. We begin to think that the ends begin to justify the means. And by the way, I'm not suggesting that uh, the opposite's true. I mean, the, the, the cross of Christ is an offense, and the gospel and biblical morality will be offensive to a culture that hates God. But in the paradigm, I'm afraid that many begin to regard kindness as compromise. Oh, you're being so kind. Oh, you, you must be compromising trying to get the approval of the world. For many, cruelty begins to be equated with conviction, and winsome, winsomeness is regarded as a vice, but whining about how bad the world is is regarded as a virtue. That seems to me to describe a lot of sort of Christian social media. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, praise God, like just stay off social media. You'll be a happier person because of it. But I'll say that mentality is, a, is symptomatic of a deeper malady that says, we've got to bring the kingdom in now, and we've got to win the battles now, and we've got to win the wars now, and win the arguments now. And we've lost sight of the fact that Christ's kingdom, beloved, is not of this world. Jesus said, my kingdom's not of this world, else would my servants fight. What if the kingdom of Christ is not about winning arguments or winning elections or getting people into positions of power, but it's about loving your neighbor as yourself? What if it's about showing compassion? What if it's about showing kindness to those who hate you? What if instead of responding in kind and fighting fire with fire, it is bless those who curse you? kind of those who despitefully use you and persecute you? What if that's what the kingdom looks like? What if Christ's kingdom has nothing to do with dominating arguments and owning the libs and winning elections? What if the kingdom and the methods of the kingdom are radically different than those of the world? Well, that's, I think, one of the points Jesus makes here. He says, what will I liken the kingdom to? It seems so small. How do we reckon with that? He says, like a man with a grain of mustard seed. Who threw it in, the, in his garden, and it grew, and it grew to a great tree, and the fowls of the air lodged in the branches of it. And then he asks again in verse 21, what's it like? It's like leaven, which a woman hid in three measures of wheat till the whole was leavened. Now, the point of these two parables is not to say that the kingdom will just slowly grow bigger and bigger until we Christianize the world, but it's to say it's really small right now. Okay, mustard seed is one of the smallest seeds, yet it can grow into a bush that's 10 feet tall. 
little seed, big bush. Those big oak trees out there, one time were a little oak, acorn, right? It says, in the same way, someone has three measures of, of meal, of, of, of flour. Okay, that's 60 pounds of flour. Right? That, that's a, if you're making bread with 60 pounds of flour, that's a lot of flour. So she throws a little bit of that fermented dough in there. And it just quietly works its way through the, the dough. And in the end, this 60 pounds of flour is all of these loaves of bread that can feed over 100 people. Contrast is between, now the kingdom seems so small, but look at the glory in the future. This is Jesus saying, okay, guys, this may seem like not a very big deal compared to the task in front of us. We've got a world that's arrayed against me. We've got a culture that's, you know, all of the sin and all this evil, and there's all this suffering and all this death. But take heart, because in the end, the kingdom wins. That's what Jesus is saying. And if the kingdom wins, that influences the way that you and I operate. We don't have to resort to the the narrow, time-focused means of I've got to win this argument and vilify those people, but rather win them for Christ. Again, the emphasis of this parable is not on the steady, progressive growth of the kingdom, but the ultimate triumph, the contrast between what it is now and what it will be then. I think it's interesting that Jesus uses such ordinary analogies. Planting a seed, baking bread, like that's about as everyday, run-of-the-mill stuff as you can get. He doesn't say it's like planting a great cedar tree or building a palace. He says advancing the kingdom, living out the kingdom, is like mundane seed sowing and ordinary bread making. I think that signals to you and me the way that we join Jesus in his mission. It's not by going out and doing really big, awesome things. No, it's going to be the simple, ordinary stuff like I have someone over to my house for dinner. It's going to be the simple, ordinary thing like I'm going to reach out to my neighbor and just ask them to tell me their story and show a concern about them as a human being so I can point them to Jesus. It's ordinary acts of hospitality. It's the ordinary means of grace, the word of God being preached and us celebrating the ordinances together and gathering for worship. Those are acts of spiritual subversion against the kingdom of Satan. So no, we're not going to expect the Christianization of our world or the moralization of our culture in our lifetime. It ain't going to happen. But one day Jesus will come back. And that what is now a seed will become a great tree. What is now just a little, a little bit of yeast going into the, into, the, into the loaf will be the final feast. Here's what I'm saying, beloved. In the end, the kingdom wins. We've got to take the long view, not just the here and now view. So let me give you some points of application and we will, we will close. If the triumph of the kingdom is guaranteed because Christ is the one who brings in the kingdom, how then should we live? Number one, we should be holy. First Peter says, okay, we're hoping for the grace that's coming to us in the end. We're looking forward to the coming and the, the, the final consummation of the kingdom. He says, how then should we live? Be ye therefore holy. The fact that the kingdom wins in the end says we should be holy right now. Not about fighting the culture around us, but the corruption within us. First John 3 says... Now, it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when we shall see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Heaven, the coming glory, he says, everyone who has this hope in himself does what? Purifies himself. If you believe that in the, in the end, the kingdom wins, the sure sign of that is that you're going to war against sin in your heart. I don't have to bring the kingdom in by changing the culture. No, Christ will do that in his good time and in his, in his way and judge all sin. I go to war against sin in my own heart. Here's a second implication. Not only should we be holy, we should be humble. First Peter also says this, that we should be ready 
with an answer to everyone who asks a reason of the hope within us with what? Meekness and fear. There's so much pride and anger in our discourse about and with our world today. We're called to walk in humility because we know we win in the end, so we don't have to come in and be like, oh, no, we're we're losing this. No, 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 we're going to win in the end. We can come with humility. We don't have to win every fight. Rather, we can be humble as we win our neighbors, as we love justice, as we do mercy, and as we walk humbly with our God. First Peter also says this, show hospitality to one another without grudging. Knowing that the kingdom wins in the end doesn't mean let's go out and build some bomb shelters and just kind of hunker down, but it says rather throw your door open, build a bigger table. Throw open the doors of your home and your heart. And finally, be hopeful. Guys, we win in the end. Like, I, I don't know if you need to be reminded of this, but sometimes we act as if, oh, man, that's just so bad and awful, and look at the country and the polls and all of these things. And, yeah, we should act and, and, and live out our values in this world, but our hope is in Jesus. And in the end, he wins. And in the end, he shall reign forever and ever. And in the end, the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So we play the long game with hope and hospitality and humility and holiness because the triumph of the kingdom is sure. Father, stir our hearts. May we walk out with hope in our hearts and a readiness to engage the culture around us.